that you die in this house, Joseph. How did you die? caffeinated version here today we're doing the morning show not for you just for us it is morning as we record this we are cap Ooh, what you got there a little coffee a little caffeine a little coffee drinking some italian roast tony arkin you are in brooklyn i am in uh, rhode island beautiful coastal rhode island and uh it is morning we normally record this in the afternoon and you're drinking coffee that's italian roast what do you put in it i'm i'm an oat milk fan now <laughs> Believe it or not, but honestly, not. Um, it wasn't driven by uh, by any great, you know, humanitarian drive in me. I, I just actually tried it, and I was like, "This is this tastes better than than actually that tastes better than milk." I've, I have allergies. I had allergies, and one of the things the allergist recommended spring allergies. I'd make a great soldier. Uh, guys, I've got slight <laughs> spring allergies. Can we call off the attack? Um, I have slight spring allergies, so he recommended oat milk, and it has changed my life. Off, off dairy. I still have cheese and stuff on pizza, but uh, oat milk. Well, you're not wonderful. crazy. You're not a crazy person. I'm not insane. <laughs> exactly. exactly. That's so lovely. A, a, a Italian roast. I drink a very fancy. I can look when you're a TV star like me, Tony. You can't drink regular coffee. You have to drink a, a, a hubristic blend of some sort of concoction. Oh, and that's, right. That's what I drink. I have coffee. I have to explain to people. I, don't get me wrong, Maddie. I can be as snotty about coffee as you. I can really get uh, picky about my my roasts and my. Mm. But you know, I drink a lot of coffee, and you gotta you gotta find a budget version of something that tastes pretty good and you can live with. You've drank a lot of coffee, and you've downed a lot of donuts. That's an obscure uh, Saturday Night Live reference. I, I, are you making fun of my physique again? No, you're so handsome. Save that drop. Oh, here we go. Show's back on track. <laughs> <laughs> hey, welcome to Rated B for Paranormal, or as we like to call it, Coffee Talk with Maddie and Tony. <laughs> um, today, our film is a 1980 release, The Changeling, with the great actor George C. Scott. We will get into that. We've got some paranormal breaking news and some other things to go over. So let's dive right into it. Let's start with our breaking paranormal news. Let's do it. Splash. So, Tony, it was big news while we were preparing for this episode that a former top intelligence official, John Ratcliffe, kind of, as Nick Pope said in his Twitter account, he flipped the narrative of the old uh, normal explanations can explain unidentified objects. This guy said on Fox News, this former intelligence chief of the United States said, we can't account for what these things are, um, which we've heard before, but never kind of like this from an official. And I thought that was really interesting and worth noting on our show as we are kind of a paranormal theme podcast. He said quite a few more sightings and strange objects in the sky have been detected than the public knows. He So his name is John Ratcliffe, Tony. He was on Fox News with host Maria Bartiromo. And things have been picked up by satellite imagery that he says, quote, frankly engage in actions that are difficult to explain movements that are hard to replicate that we don't have the technology for or traveling at speeds that exceed the sound barrier without any sonic boom end quote so 
I saw actually something about this uh, as you, this has been a really hectic week for me. So I, I forgot that I read this somewhere else. It was released in some in some um, print uh, newspaper this week as well. It wasn't just Fox News. Yes, it went. It kind of went viral. It went across, you know, okay. kind of everything, all, right. all news sources, because well, it was a big admission, you know, on on a on a talk show, on a chat show. Huge, huge admission. I mean, uh, that's really extraordinary. They have no uh, theory to, other than other than we don't know what it is. Like they they don't are they saying that they think it's country's technology or that he basically admitted that um you know the more prosaic explanations aren't necessarily enough. And we, and, and it, he, you know, he kind of hinted that there's a lot more to come, which we've suspected and which other people have said who are into this stuff, but uh, for a, an official to just kind of go on. And you know, what's funny He's like, he started smiling when she, she goes, I got to ask you about UFOs. And if you watch the clip, which you can see everywhere, it's everywhere in social media. Um, he just starts smiling, which is kind of, it's like people's go-to response especially on news programs. Like I always complain for years um, and it's lessened now, but whenever they do like a UFO story, they start with the X-Files theme and yeah. the anchor starts smiling and laughing. I'm like, yeah, mm-hmm. when, when can we, can we get over that please? And this guy, it's like his go-to. She goes, I got to ask you about UFOs. And he starts kind of smiling as if, oh boy. Whack. And then he proceeds to admit that the government doesn't understand what these things are. So I was like, what are you smiling about in a way? It, you know, It bothers me too. It, it reminds me of, uh, there was an incident during the Phoenix Lights uh, oh. experience that they had in Arizona. Yes, um, that covered the whole state. That was uh, uh, lights and craft that were seen by they think maybe what hundred thousand people yes. across the whole state. Thousands and thousands of people saw this stuff. And um, who was it? The governor came on television. Was the governor, I believe. It wasn't like yes. the mayor of Phoenix. I think it was the I, governor of Arizona. I think it was the governor of the state, I think, yes. And he came on television the next day and he said on the like a morning news show. And he's like, Well, we know there was a lot of activity last night, and we finally figured out what it was. And um this guy in a rubber alien suit walks out and they start making jokes. It was it was worse than that. He held a press conference and brought the guy That's right. And a press That's right. conference. Now the thing that really bothers me about this story. I mean, that's that's disrespectful enough to the people that have witnessed unexplainable, terrifying, weird things that they've reported in good faith because they're worried about, you know, <laughs> general safety. Mm-hmm. They're being mocked now by somebody who then later on admitted to having seen the lights himself, had no idea what was going on, was terrified, but just went on the news the next day and made a joke about it. Yes, he later admitted. I think admitted, he feels bad about that now, but he I'm does. still mad at him for that. Yeah, and, and you know, it goes to show you that peer pressure doesn't necessarily go away when you become an adult. You know, like no. he knew as a as a government official, as a governor, that he had to, or he felt, I should say, he didn't know, he felt that he would receive ridicule and perhaps not get elected. So he, you know, well, made this joke of it, even though he had an experience with it. Let's let's be even kinder to the guy and say that maybe he was pressured. In more ways than just peer pressure. Mm-hmm. I mean, I can entirely see, you know, I mean, it doesn't even have to be MIB coming over to his house. It could literally just be a phone call from an uh, Air Force base going like, you know what? We're not talking about this. So Excellent. do whatever good you point. have to do or your career is over. Really good point. 
Really good point. I mean, could you every time you make a good point? Could you just like just uh, cockily uh, sip your coffee? Yeah, I'm gonna do that, uh, or at least we'll just add a special effect because sometimes I don't have coffee. But let's yeah. just have like a slurping of smug coffee slurp after I say something smart. A smug. <laughs> That's what I drink coffee in is just smug. You know, Maddie. Maybe he was pressured from other sources. It's it's my version of the Caruso sunglass flip. Yes. Excellent. Well. Uh, Tony, one more piece of breaking news. This is right in our wheelhouse because it combines pop culture, in fact, film, and you'll see why, and the paranormal. So, I mean, how could we not do this story? They did a poll, a study of 2,000 British adults commissioned by TV channel Blaze as part of UFO Week, asked who of all the celebrities that you know of would be the best to handle an extraterrestrial threat. You know, if aliens come down and become our overlords or if they announce that, yes, aliens are real, we've been dealing with them, what celebrity do you want to handle the situation? So, Tony, the study came up with top 20 celebrities who would best deal with an alien invasion. If you can get, in three guesses, uh, two of the top five, you win. I'll send you my special coffee called Coffee for Wellness. Okay. If you can get two of of the top five. I have. Can I ask one question before, though? Yes. Are 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 these living celebrities? Everyone on the list is, I believe, in the top ten. What did I say? Two of the. Oh no, I said two of the top five. Everyone in the top five is alive, except for I think one. Okay, I'm going to say I, I. I think the first person that came to mind is The Rock. Is Dwayne Johnson? Was the Dwayne Rock. Johnson on that list? Well, I, you're almost there. Uh, number twelve is Boris Johnson. It's a British poll. Okay, so The Rock's not on it. Do I get okay? I have do I have three choice? Uh, okay, you're you're warm. You're very warm with that guess, if you know what I mean. You're on the right Schwarzenegger. Track. Schwarzenegger. Arnold Schwarzenegger. Tony is number one. You're getting okay. the coffee. Okay. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I think that's a perfect choice because we already know in Predator he he kicks ass when it comes to aliens, right? The guy still has his Conan sword in his office. <laughs> so he's got to have the job. Is that what he calls it? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Get yeah. in here. I need. Oh, all right. So I'll do my predator. <laughs> I'll do my Schwarzenegger predator. <clears throat> here we go. Come on, kill me. Do it. I'm here. Come on, kill me. Do it now. Come on. Okay, I really, I just feel like that's a good impression. It's really good, but the visual that goes with it, I wish you could see because Maddie has to do some things with his hands and his body to get that, to get that sound, that Austrian thing going. Uh, It's remarkable. Thank you for doing that for me. Come on, kill me, Amia. I do it when when Yoko and I get in fights, my wife and I get in fights. I that's how I break the you know the ten, I'll just be like, come on, do it, kill me, I'm here. And she's like, oh, she just walks her, rolls her eyes. She doesn't her. laugh anymore, but no, she just walks God, away. God, no. The worst thing you can say to Yoko, my wife, if you meet her, is like, it must be so fun being married to him. He's so funny. <laughs> and then she that's actually so- says, come on, kill me, do it, I'm here. <laughs> Oh, my goodness. Um, Tony, let's complete the list for our audience, our 
P for P audience. Uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger. Wait, there's a third. There's a third person. Katy Perry. You mean to fight aliens or who listens to yes, the program? Katy Perry, okay, fighting aliens. Actually, that'd be great. Just play one of her songs and they'll they'll go away. Yeah. Wow, that was not. Nah, come on. I, I no comment. There may be. She may have wonderful songs. I don't really know her songs. I think she does. I feel like you know for pop, you know, pop music. It's it's I'm sure very good. I have no uh, opinions. Uh, okay. Number one, Arnold Schwarzenegger. Number two, yeah. Will Smith makes sense. Okay. Yeah. I'm. Yeah. Now, but it only. But see, I don't know. No, I don't know. I have to f- contest that. We really only have Independence Day here. True. To you know, I mean, he fought zombies and he's done other stuff, but Schwarzenegger has fought aliens more times than you can, you know, shake a stick at. Honestly, Kurt Russell should be on that list. Hundred percent. Not on the list though. Um. Not on the top 20 that I see. What use is this? Uh, <laughs> well, again, it's, it's, a, it's a British list of, of two, 20. Now, the next one makes, number three makes a lot of sense when you realize it was done in, in the UK. Uh, you might agree with this. It's just a, it's a strange one. Uh, number three on the list, Sir David Attenborough. Which. Absolutely. No. No, but he knew, like, he knows nature stuff and things like okay. that. I feel like he could communicate with them in an intelligent way. He's, I think he's we like need... a father figure to them. But where's Simon Pegg? <laughs> mean, Simon, Simon Pegg's on the it? list. Simon Pegg's oh. on the list. Uh, okay. He is number 15. Uh, he should be higher than Attenborough, I think. Uh, number... He knows about this planet, but he doesn't know about any other planets. That's true. That's true, but maybe he could, he could uh, you know... Find common ground. I, I think Richard At- Attenborough would be a better choice. Mm. What's he the difference? Dinosaur- he fought dinosaurs. Oh, I, I know who should be number one on the list. You're a little early. <laughs> You're a little early, buddy. We're not talking about ghosts yet, but. <laughs> Every time, does he do that to other people? Because when I call you, he starts in. Is it me? I think he doesn't like it when I do recordings back here. I'm not paying attention to him yes. and uh, and um, he just doesn't like it. He wants yeah. me available and he can tell I'm not really going to be there for him. Right. That's what it hour. is. And you're I emoting, so. you're emoting, you're making noises. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Staring yeah. at the screen. It is a strange And uh, talking about Satan most of the yeah, time. So uh, that's actually true. Get some all riled up. Uh, let's complete the list and we'll get into the changeling. Arnold Schwarzenegger, number one, Will Smith, number two, Sir David Attenborough, three, four, Bruce Willis. And five, who I thought would be number one, if I had to guess, Tom Cruise. Okay, yeah. Well, I have. Uh, we agree to disagree, me and the and the British Empire at this and at the, on this issue, <laughs> and probably others. But I, I definitely uh, don't feel. I don't feel good about many of these uh, these calls. I don't. <laughs> give me, give me your, a couple who be in your top five. I gotta think. About well, this. I think Kurt Russell is is got to be. He yeah. might be my my number one. I like that. I like um, that. Bill Shatner's still alive. Ninety years old. I don't. Do you care how old Captain Kirk is? Really, when yeah, we're talking about protecting the world from. He's a fellow History Channel guy, so I should. Yeah, support him. Yeah, right. Support okay. him. You okay. guys work together. Mm-hmm. Um. So those are two, I think, for sure. Well, Telly Savalas is gone, but I oh. think Telly would have been a great choice. How about and if Clint? we don't have to, Clint, 
Keep going with uh, Telly Savalas. Well, Telly's not alive, but I mean, I think if he were, he'd be pretty pretty high up there. And Clint, what did he do? He did Firefox. There were no aliens in that. Yeah, but just can't you see an alien going like, we want to control you? And I'm going, let me tell you something. Here on America, we do things a certain way. Clint would just blow up the planet to destroy it, to fight them. That's what he We are do. going to take over your nuclear facility. I'm going to kill all of you. <laughs> all of you, burn your houses down. You better not cut up no whores, or I'll come back here the and one kill thing. every one of you sons of bitches. Yeah, he's 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 angry. He might be a good choice then. He's right? very angry, and he could fight. He's a good shot. Like I, I accept that. <laughs> accept that. Carl Malden would have been good too, but let's you know that's a different list. How about George C. Scott in his prime? <sighs> yeah, although we know that would lead nowhere good after Doctor Strangelove. We saw what kind of negotiating he did there. Uh, well, there you go. If you want to check it out, we, we will link to that article on our social media. And last week, we got a great challenge from a fan. Uh, he asked us what our number one, you can go back to last week's episode if you haven't heard it, our number one paranormal scene in all paranormal movies. Uh, Tony, I got to say, there's a scene in The Changeling that I forgot about because the last time I saw this movie when I was like 10, that might go in my top three. I might bump out one of those M. Night Shyamalans and put this scene in. What scene am I talking about, Tony? You don't know. You have to hang on. I know. You know Tony and I love hearing from you. Hello, Tony and Matty. This is Peter Stray here. And it's so easy to leave us a voicemail. I love your show so much. All you got to do is go to our homepage, anchor.fm slash rated paranormal. Hey, guys. I really like your podcast. Simply click the message button. I hope that that's a suggestion you'll consider. And just tell us what you think. Love what you guys are doing. I'm doing it right now. Isn't that meta? Anchor.fm slash rated paranormal. Chapstick. After the death of his wife and daughter in a car crash, a music professor staying at an old mansion is dragged into a decades-old mystery by an inexplicable presence in the mansion's attic. Terror, horror, and even politics collide in The Changeling, 1980. What did you think of a rewatch of The Changeling, Tony? I got to go back to the first time I saw it. Because this, for me, this movie is kind of like a... It's like a warm, cozy blanket, you know, in the fall. I saw this movie uh, on, like on TV. I don't even think I rented it. I think it was on television. I was probably 13 years old or something. It was rain. It was a, like a, either a snow day or gray, rainy kind of fall day where you couldn't go out. And if you set the mood right, like if you watch this movie under the right circumstances, I think it would become anybody's number one horror movie of that kind of that type. And it's a very specific kind of movie because it's not, um, it's not geared like a lot of horror movies are. It's uh it's very kind of methodical. It's very logical. It's not trying most of the time to, uh, to spook you with a lot of jump scares or, uh, or it's mostly a character study about George C. Scott which I really love about genre movies. I love it when they have the courage to kind of like really explore a character mm. like they do in the exorcist, you know, like I always said that the exorcist could be, it would be a great movie if there was no exorcism in it. Like just, right. Just yes. Story of the single mother trying to, trying to raise her daughter would have been 
really great just with the actors and the script they had. Not that I don't like the exorcism part. I love that. But, but you know, it still would be a movie you'd go to. And I think this is the same thing. This is, I would see George C. Scott play this character hmm. of a widowed pianist uh, and just watch him live his life. So it's a very real feeling to hmm. me. And um, it's, uh, it's also a very like special child childhood memory movie for me. So I'm, I'm very biased. I, I, I really, really enjoy this movie. And I think there's some things that have aged oddly about it. I think it also has some problems and some, some things that don't work, but I think what does work makes up for anything that um, you might quibble about. What about you? As we had hoped, a refreshing palate cleanser from Stir of Echoes last week. Yeah, very yeah. much so. What about you? I, I would agree. I think I had a little more difficulty with it than you maybe. This is a case where, and we, we kind of hope for this in a way, we had a, we've had both iterations of films. Some films work unbelievably well as a film, and the paranormal aspects are shaky. This one, I thought the paranormal aspects were wonderful. A home run in a lot of cases of how they portrayed a haunting in a house. Excellent. I have to say, I totally agree. Some of the film aspects of it, when you get beyond George C. Scott, and when you start to talk about some of the expository dialogue, things like that, I had a lot of problems with. Uh, and so I'll, I'm going to save to the end whether I think the paranormal aspects uh, outweigh the problems I had with the film as a film and see if it's going to get on the shelf so we have something to look forward to. I was thinking, Tony, why don't we start with what works? Why don't we kind of go through things that worked and then I'll get into the things that okay. did not work for me. Okay. Well, for I mean, I think the big obvious thing that works is despite there being a problem in it that I will talk about, I think we'll talk about later. Yeah. <laughs> But I don't know if it's his fault or not. I think George C. Scott is a thing that works really well in this movie. Yes. I, I, if you know his work, you're used to seeing him in a kind of a certain mode, an extremely aggressive, angry kind of ex-military guy or a yes. military guy full of like rage and, and um, you know, moral indignation. And, and he's very loud and kind of a scary. He's he's not a he doesn't come off usually like a bad guy, but just a scary and very intimidating person. Like a strict dad, the dad that everyone was scared to go sleep over yeah. the house. Like, nice yeah. to you. He'd say, hi, uh, how you doing, Tony? Yeah. But you're like, I'm not causing any trouble at that house. Right, exactly. <laughs> you know, he, of course, he'd kind of, you know, built that persona with characters like Patton and and in, uh, you know, in Dr. Strangelove. Uh, and his off-screen persona was pretty crazy. He was a, he was a very rough guy. He was a big drinker and I didn't know that. a lot of self-loathing and a lot of, you know, he talked about it a lot in interviews. Wow. Um, complicated relationship with women, not altogether great. But however, what's interesting about the part is that you see a Scott that you're not really ever thought you'd see. Like he is so um, such a different human being in this movie yeah. than any other movie I've seen him in. He's gentle. He's um, he's kind of soft spoken. He's he's um, he's grieving in the film, but um, he doesn't he doesn't choose to like make this about his grief or histrionics about crying or, or he's just, he's just uh, kind of stripped away a lot of his, you know, actorly persona mm. to create, I think one of the, one of the most believable human beings in a, in a horror movie, really, uh, the you know, a top, top 20, like really good character pieces about horror, you know? So, I think he's a big 
big part of what's great. What about you? T- totally agree. He fits into one of the things that helps carry through the problems I have with the film. Like many other actors in this role, it would have been a lot worse. As I said in the intro, he's a music professor. His wife and child die in a tragic accident. He rents a house. House is haunted. He starts investigating why he's being bothered by this ghost of a child. And it leads to kind of a political guy who's in that city who has to do with this issue. So it's a it becomes kind of a whodunit at a certain point. It goes from a haunting right. of a house to a whodunit. So that's the bones. His reactions to the horror are so grounded. When the house starts getting haunted, he actually sees an, an image of the boy in a tub of this dead boy who's haunting him. And he just kind of like backs out of the room. And there's no big face. There's no histrionics. There's no, oh my God. Mm-hmm. He just stares at it. And I go, that's exactly what I would do. Because I, I went through a ghost experience and that's what I did. My shoulders went up. I put my head down and I just kind of backed up the stairs, like barely able to move. I was paralyzed with fear. And and I go, boy, that's such a great choice from an actor, from an experienced actor. So he he carries this film in a lot of ways. There's a scene also, Tony, that, and this fits very much into what works It happens at about, I don't know, 13 or 14 minutes in. He walks into a classroom and it's really crowded. It's a class he's teaching. It's one of my favorite scenes in the movie. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Because it's so grounded. It it reminds me of your choice last week from Close Encounters. Mm -hmm. Although this particular scene had nothing to do with paranormal. It's so real. I wonder if George C. Scott kind of improved that because. I was thinking the same thing. So he goes to his first class. After he's moved across country to, to back to the, I guess, Seattle is where it takes place. Yes. Where, and it's where he went to school. So he's kind of like returned to teach at his school. And he walks in for his first session. And what he expected to be about 25 students is literally like 300 people in this huge auditorium waiting for him to talk and play. And his reaction is so genuinely surprised and flustered, like not just being unprepared for it he it, it's it's a subtle thing it's very very small but if if you're paying attention and it's you, you realize you rarely see work that's that realistically kind yes. of tuned it's so real and he jokes and, with them he jo- and the class laughs yeah you know he he deflates the moment he says something like uh no I know there's only 26 people registered for this class and the room erupts with laughter it was so deflate it's just, it's as if it was an acting class mm-hmm. and they announced that George C. Scott is coming to talk to this acting class. And, and that's how he handled it. And I, it just, it just, and I said, Oh, I'm in good hands in this film. Like yeah. with him in the lead, we're in good hands here after those two well, moments. And you could argue that you're in good hands from the director, despite some, mm. you know, some <laughs> fumbly stuff for, yeah. for, for working, for allowing George C. Scott the room to give that performance. Correct. I mean, yes, that's not, right. that's, it's not just one, per, you know, you're right. An actor isn't just working alone. Nobody on a movie is. So um, I think to give the kind of space right. and time to that character, that's, that's Peter Medak. That's the director. And um, well, there's, I think we're going to agree on a scene that I think for me is one of my favorite now, one of my favorite supernatural scenes in a movie. And it's the seance. There's a seance in this movie that uh, I think is masterfully done in every way. I think it's chillingly scary. 
like it's it's honestly one of the more unnerving kind of chilling yes. seances in a movie yes um without anything happening nothing like there isn't there isn't an apparition nothing like pops out it's just psychological but yes it's really well done well edited well shot <sighs> well paced um it's unnerving uh it's well played by all the actors oh it's a great scene it really was that is. the it, one it, you were talking about it was it's but it's also the others the other sound i had you pull yeah. is my tie I, I don't know which one i would ha- i would pick but it, to to put my top 3 of all time which maybe bump one of my choices from last week it would be one mm. of these two scenes and the automatic okay. writing seance scene is one of them the woman who plays the medium does what what they call automatic writing in that world and that is a technique that some mediums use they will just start scribbling on a piece of paper and some will actually write words as if the entity is channeling through them. Others just keep, there's a, there's a famous young man who's on, he had his own show on E. Tra, uh, I want to say Travis Henry or something, something like that. He's a medium to the stars. He uses this technique. He will like scribble and scribble. And sometimes he'll come up with images and boxes. And he doesn't really write words like in this changeling scene. He just uses it as a, as a technique. Um, and so this scene you know, shows this medium doing the automatic writing. She has a partner with her who pulls the paper away as she's scribbling and she kind of mindlessly scribbles. And then every once in a while, a word will come out and he repeats the word. And you're right, Tony, it's so chilling. It almost makes you feel like that that duo worked together in real life doing this. At yeah. the very least, if they are actors, they rehearsed this. They rehearsed this process because there was there was no setup, no explanation. They just got into it, and he knew mm-hmm. when to pull the paper. And if a pencil broke, he replaces it. So mm-hmm. well crafted, so well done, an unbelievable scene. What is your name, Joseph? Did you die in this house, Joseph? How did you die? Is there someone here you wish to communicate with? John. Help. 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 John. Help. 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 You know, there are paranormal haunted house movies right now one after the other after the other that could learn so much from that scene. Oh my gosh. Well, I mean, there we could name several that owe everything to this movie that have stolen. This movie is so stolen from. We'll go over in that list in a second. I have, <laughs> I have that stuff mapped yeah. out. Good. But yeah, that's seance scene. I, I don't know. It's, it's, it's just so, so well done. No fancy effects. Everything is practical. It's just two people doing what they do. The score, as you mentioned, Tony, is incredible in the background, chilling. The mm-hmm. way the guy, help, help, Joseph, Joseph. Like, it's just chilling. It's chilling. Yes. And you can hear her yeah. writing, scribbling, scribbling. He's pulling the paper away right at the right time. Yeah. It, it's masterful. What's odd about it is that that scene is is an example. That it's such a high standard of filmmaking. And that scene is so famous and it's so well done. And it references other movies like... Don't look now. Like, remember the blind um, occultist lady in that film? Very similar, obviously kind of referencing that. I guess what I feel like is that if you're going to, if you can direct a scene that well, 
And that really is direction. I mean, there's there's great performances. There's a really tight pace to it. There's great editing. There's a build to it. Yes. There's mystery. I, I feel like you have to you have to give this filmmaker some credit. I mean, he's not a very famous filmmaker. He's probably most famous for for this and one other movie. But I, you know, I it's so striking, and I think that it's like we can just we can probably pick a couple of bad scenes in this movie. Yeah. Ruining the theorem that like it takes, you know, you know, one great scene and no bad ones. But I don't know. I feel like there are enough good things in this. Definitely. To, it, it, he does a great job. And I was looking at his his movie list. He didn't do really any other horror or, or paranormal themed movies. So for his one attempt, he kind of hit it out of the park. The problems I have with it actually come from script and dialogue, mm-hmm. which I'll get to when we get to the yeah. things that don't work. But I kind of blame him in a way. Because I go, as a director, I would see that line and go, no, that doesn't need to be there. You know, so that's just, that's semantics. And I just want to give props to the score. That's another huge thing that works for me in this movie. Mm -hmm. Um, The effects are practical, which like in that scene, there's no big laser show or anything. They don't try to fake anything. It's all practical. It's it's a door opening behind him in the daytime as he plays piano. That's chilling with no, and the score fits that. He's a composer. The score is very classical. Even the ghost sign sounds that we hear, the banging, um, are big kettle drums, it sounds like. It sounds orchestral. It has rhythm mm-hmm. to it. Mm-hmm. There was thought in this movie, and the score fits right in there. Yeah, yeah. And it's piano-driven, like, you know, like his work is. And yes. You feel like it might be him. I, I Another thing that I love about the movie, and I love in the movie are all the scenes with him in music, him composing, yes. Yes. him working with the reel to reel. Now, here's an interesting thing. I, I wasn't able to find this because I didn't, I kind of ran out of time. I was mm-hmm. researching other parts of it, but this, this is probably one of the first movies, if not the first to deal with audio recordings that you accidentally capture the ghost voice on, EVPs, which has now maybe. become EVPs, like it's become a huge thing, but I don't remember really seeing that in movies before this he's got you know he's a composer so he sits at his piano and he works out things alone in this big mansion and he's got a reel-to-reel those old-fashioned reel-to-reel tape decks on his on his desk right near him so he uses it for his work and then he uh is it during the seance they do they record the seance is that he, what it he is? plays back the seance and hears the kid's right. voice and now, here's the, which they didn't hear in the room right the exorcist does do that which was what 76 or something uh, also mm-hmm. a reel to reel. The priest hears things. Thank you. That's right. Yes. That's he, right. He hears things that you couldn't kind of hear with the naked ear. Um, yeah. So and also we've got satanic that. panic earlier in the seventies. Everybody was saying that if you played black Sabbath records yes. backwards, you'd hear. So yeah. Okay. It's not, but it's yeah, still but it, really well done. And one of the first to yes. do it. Yes. Certainly the whole music aspect, him listening back to his music sets it up. You almost know it's coming because they, you know, he focuses on this reel-to-reel turning, the tapes turning, and you know, all right, that's coming into play. But it doesn't. It's it's well done. It it actually works to serve that. You wait for yeah. that moment when and it, it comes. Subverts your expectations sometimes, and yes. that's always kind of smart. And, and it sets it up. It wasn't just you know. Again, thought went into it. It wasn't just we're going to record the seance. It's like this man uses this device for his job. Yes, it fits well. You yes. know, everything's explained. It's not just swords on the wall, as you said about yeah. Kremlins, you know, that you, that are just later <laughs> used. And everything is like that in this film. The, okay, so Stir of Echoes or Gremlins with the swords on the wall. Go back and listen to our Gremlins episode. 
things that are just used and no explanation. Stir of echoes, the music he hears, never, never, other than the music was playing when she was sexually assaulted. It doesn't help solve the crime. It doesn't explain anything. This movie, everything that's introduced has an explanation and it's revealed. The banging has an explanation. Right. Everything they introduce is explained and justified. It's nothing's Mm -hmm. left hanging, which is now you can argue, you know, did you enjoy that? But, but at least it was followed through on and justified. Yes. And in that way, you know, I mean, I think one of, if you're going to, if you're going to go see this movie, if you're going to check it out, recognize that it's, I think there's something interesting about it. I think this movie was old fashioned when it came out. Hmm. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. We yeah. we had are we had already seen, you know, uh a lot of really really uber violent, crazy, sophisticated horror and stuff, uh science fiction by 1980. I mean, Aliens had ar- Alien had already come out. You know, I mean, so this is a throwback to a, a different kind of horror movie even in 1980, and I think one of the things people might get confused about is thinking that this is dated like a 1980s movie. Some of that's true, but mostly they knew that, I think. And we're making a very kind of Edwardian, um, you know, slow, methodical, gentlemanly kind of horror movie. Yes. And that's yes. what it is. They couldn't, you're not going to change that about it. It's never going to be something else. But if you into, if you want that mode of horror or, or paranormal, it really does fit that bill of, of um it feels almost like it could be a Sherlock Holmes case or yes. something in a weird way. It's kind of what Knives Out did recently, I think, a little bit. You know, it's got yeah. that feel to it, a yes. mansion movie, you know? Right. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I think it was going against the grain of the times because slasher movies were all anybody was into back in that at that time for horror. Great point. Um, and look, you know, The Shining hadn't even come out yet. The Shining was three months later. Wow. Now, I think that probably the makers of this movie think they're lucky stars that <laughs> they beat the shining to the box office. Cause there'd be no, even the Shining didn't do very well. It still would have trampled over. I mean, the shining was not a hit. I, I think it's important to note, but it took all the interest. It took all the air out of the room for horror at that time. And there wouldn't have been any real room for it after that. So, but then also the shining is a movie that actually it didn't cause Kubrick had shot this before the changeling because Cooper took a long time to make the shining, but Peter Medak got that rubber ball bouncing that toy before Kubrick did, which is interesting. Amazing. Amazing. What an, what an effective scene. I remember. So I'd like to go back for a second to when I saw it, it was on VHS float in my house floating around. So I must've been, it came out in 70, made in 79, basically came out in 80. It was probably 81 or 82 or 83 by the time it was on VHS in my house on the big Mm -hmm. old, you know, press the buttons VCR we used to have. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. And I remember my brother watching it and that red ball scene. And I just went, yo, yeah, no, 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 I'm no. out of here. I'm yeah. out. I'm out. And to watch it now, of course, not as scary, uh, be- mostly because you know, it's coming not because of my age. Cause I get scared of movies all the time, but, uh, mostly cause I knew it was coming, but what a really effective technique. And, and oh, to it's... your point, Tony, to, to them making a, old fashioned movie for its time even, which I think is a mm-hmm. really great point because it, it could look dated to you and you might make the mistake of thinking this is 1980 dated. No, no, no. It wasn't 1980 no. dated other than the clothes. It's, yeah. it's dated to be dated at that time. 
yes. which is phenomenal. Um, yeah. The ball is one of those things. How can I show a haunting in a chilling way, a little child's toy bouncing down the stairs? I mean, that is as practical as it gets, and it yeah. freaking works. Yeah, he's alone in the house. Uh, he's grieving his his wife and daughter who died in a tragic accident maybe a year before this. You get the feeling. He's changed his life. He's living alone in this big mansion. And he's got some of the things from his old life, including his daughter, his dead daughter's uh, toys. And one of those things is a rubber ball with a stripe on it, like a classic yeah. child's. That's the other thing. It looks like it's from the 1920s. Totally. And it's a movie and set in the 80s. He's sitting, I think he's writing music quietly alone at night, and he hears something thudding getting closer and closer, and he walks into the hallway and down the stairs. He's alone in the house, comes bouncing this ball down the steps, and it lands at his feet. So simple, like you said. It's so incredibly simple. And it's really become one of the, it's one of the most famous scenes. Like Scorsese's top 11 list of scariest movies ever made. And it's on that list for this scene, I think. It's really, really spooky. I don't love the way the scene ends, in fact. I think it's not, I like the seance better. The image of the ball is great. It's great. But then they kind of take it a little too far for me. He, it, it, they play it. They cut it too close. Like he sees the ball. He then takes the ball. He's like, I'm going to get rid of this. And he drives to a river and he throws it off a bridge and then he drives home. And then, of course, the ball's there again. But it plays a little bit like a cartoon in that section rather than, you know, I, I don't know. It's, it didn't totally work. I literally wrote in my notes. They weren't patient. So thank you. Right. So someone came up with this great idea, the screenwriter who or the director, whomever. Hey, the ball reappears. And so when the ball comes down, he throws it in the river. And instead of then waiting for the ball to come at a scary point in the movie later in the third act, they Mm -hmm. string it all together so that he literally comes home from dropping in the river and it goes down the stairs. It's It's like like a little short film in the (laughs) middle of the movie. Yes. Yes. Like, and and it kind of over. If you had held on to the ball, as it were, (laughs) if you had held on, if the ghost had held on to the ball and that had happened when things were really at their peak towards the end, you know, it would have been much more effective. Oh yeah. So, you know, maybe a re-edit by someone like Tony Arkin would have served him well. I I did have a note here that I felt like, I don't, I'm not going to say studio interference because this was a Canadian, this was a Canadian production and I don't think their studio system was the same as ours. I think they were much less invasive, you know, um, they were free. This was a really important movie for Canada. It, it, um, it was one of their first, one of the first big international movies that they, that they ever had. They had a, they'd always had a film, film community there. Hmm. There was always movies being made but um this was like the really early breakaway notable hit that that wasn't a grindhouse movie you know that wasn't this was kind of like a mature adult drama for a lot of people and it was a big outing they they were newly had these genie awards which were the the canadian oscars it's the equivalent and this thing swept it 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 like won wow everything i didn't know that 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 year at the genies and it made quite a quite a splash that sequence of the ball coming down the stairs is is iconic completely and even if you think that it, you know like yeah that they don't totally capitalize on it like we said they weren't patient great point um the first half of it is is really does work i think hmm. like when you first see what it is it's very it's very disturbing um on a just on a psychological level you, you it, that's when it starts to become kind of personal hmm. um any other thing that you before we start 
tearing it apart. (laughs) 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 Um, You know, two two quick things. Uh, One, you mentioned it's it's purposeful kind of datedness. It's throwbackness. It's it's Edwardian mansion movie. You know, um, it's almost got a Britishness to it. Uh, Yeah, British director. uh, There you go. Um, In that vein, there's also a little. It it also becomes a little gumshoe noir at one point. And again, we've seen this before. A lot of cigarette smoking. <laughs> like, a, a, And I know George C. Scott, you yeah. can tell from his laugh and his voice, he was a chain smoker. Every time he laughs, it's like... <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but, uh, but, you know, and that's, that is 70s and that is early 80s also. Mm. But like, you know, he does the... And this is purposeful because everything in this movie is purposeful. You know, she tells him something and the lady comes in and says, this house doesn't want people in it. And he turns to the camera and he takes that last drag and he tosses it on the top of the roof and crushes it with his foot. Like, that's a noir moment. That is... <laughs> all right, he's about... That's that's the film equivalent of saying, he's about to go on the investigation, everybody. And yeah. then he does. So, And I, that's also pure Scott, too. That's just Scott, like, you know, And that it worked. Up. That actually worked for me. Um, mm-hmm. I liked it. I got it. It seemed more purposeful than other times we've seen that. And then the last thing I just want to say as far as what worked, and this was the other scene that I would either put this scene right here or that seance automatic writing scene uh, as perhaps in my top three of all-time paranormal scenes, certainly top five all-time. I can almost put uh-huh. it in there right now. Uh, one of these two scenes. And this is George C. Scott getting home after going on that kind of detective, you know, process. He solves the murder of the boy and still the house is just freaking out on him and he loses it. And he yells at the house, at the spirit, at the ghost boy. And I thought, A, paranormally, this is a phenomenal scene because it sums up the frustration and the anger of the experiencer when the experience becomes negative. You know, I've talked to several people who have had hauntings and they felt victimized. They felt like victims. Mm -hmm. And there's a rage that comes with that because you can't punch someone. There's no one to punch. And I think it captures that. I think the sound design is incredible, the way his voice echoes. Um, And just as a piece of acting, as a piece of acting and filmmaking. So this one hits all, everything that you and I care about, Tony, when it comes to paranormal film. I'm getting the chills even thinking about it before I play it. It's everything. It's a great scene. It's great character development. It's great acting. It's great sound design. And it's great, great paranormal theater. That damn son of a bitch. What is it you want? What do you want from me? I've done everything I can do. There's nothing more to do. I mean, that's as good as it gets in film, I think. It's really chilling. Yeah, Ooh. it's so good. Um, I, you know, I, I I really can't start talking about anything negative until we we do a little bit of, um, you know, proper respect to Mr. Melvin Douglas. 1,000%. All right. Melvin Douglas is so beyond belief incredible just as a person. Just that the fact that he was still making movies in 1980... T- tell he had he, t- his first he film was made in 1931. Okay, <laughs> he went on to work with everybody that was famous. He was worked with Spencer Tracy, with with uh, I mean, just with everybody. He did Ninochka. Mr. Blandings builds his dream house with Cary Grant. 
and but he kept working as the thing. Like Melvin Douglas worked from 1931. He he <laughs> was he was in The Candidate in 1972 with Robert Redford. He's in Being There in 1979 with Peter Sellers. He, 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 and then his last film after this, this wasn't even his last movie. His last film was Ghost Story, which was two or three movies after this, which is a similar film we should consider probably doing on the show. Yes. Uh, similar kind of um, low key, kind of detuned, character driven uh, paranormal ghost movie. Yes. Um, and that was his last film. Um, Melvin Go- Douglas. Ghost Story was his last film? Ghost Story was yeah. his last movie, yeah. And he's really great in this film. I think he, the scene where uh, George C. Scott finally gets him the medallion that proves that he is, in fact, tied to this ghost in a very, you know, complicated but, you know, unfortunate way. His reaction is is the reaction of an actor, you'd think, 30, 40 years his junior. So good. Uh, you know, it's so it's so complicated. Yeah. Because he's not a villain, really. He's right. just uh, guilty about things. It's a really complicated reaction that he has. The movie is largely about guilt. I, I, yeah. I would have had no way to you know process that as a 10-year-old or wherever I was. Whatever. But I, in this watching, I said, wow, this movie has a lot to do with regret and guilt. George C. Literally sur- survivor's guilt. That was about Literally. to say, George C. Scott's guilt of, of watching his wife and child die and being locked in the mm-hmm. phone booth and not be able to help them. There's that. There's yeah. this... Uh, Melvin's guilt over yeah. keeping this secret. There's guilt all Which over. It's not this really film. his fault, but right. he's kept this guilt all his life. Right. And it's really, it's really great. It's the, it's the, you know, for me, the first half of this movie is kind of crackerjack, and then the second half, the problems of the script start kind of coming true mm-hmm. in the second half, mm-hmm. and I, I just feel like there's script problems. I, I mean, I really do because the, the yeah. first half is so well done that. I think if the script had been able to keep up with it, they would have made a movie that that sustained that throughout. But it doesn't for me. Yes. It doesn't really sustain the terror and no. it doesn't really ever uh, super. It never gets scarier or more intense than the seance, for instance. And Correct. that's in the middle of the movie. It suffers from not. Here's what I I think. And I as much as I love George G. Scott in it, there's one misstep for me in that. I think he handles it too well mm. outside of that screaming scene, which is fantastic. When mm. he screams, what do you want from me? It, it, one of the things I think that's an important aspect to a ghost movie or a haunted house movie, as much of a trope as it is, it's still an important aspect of it. The, the witness or the person who's victimized by it slowly becoming unraveled because of the experience the ghost itself challenging his, his or her worldview, the experience shattering what they thought anything, what, what was real or true or not, or what, you know, you see that in other films, exorcist, poltergeist. And sometimes you go like, wow, we got it. We can do without it. We've seen that before. And I admired them stripping away a lot of that kind of histrionics of his reactions to things was great. But I felt it became impersonal at a certain point near the end. I didn't know why George C. Scott, was there he just seemed like a cop who was facilitating like you said this mystery as opposed to being personally traumatized or affected by the experience uh, what do you think completely agree in fact almost like we planned this and we didn't the mm. first clip i wanted to play of what didn't work for me speaks to this point this is george c scott 
speaking to a researcher, a psychic researcher, after he's experienced the hauntings. And so he goes to the college psychic research department, which, by the by, as they're talking, they stop right underneath a huge sign that says psychic research, which uh, you didn't. We didn't need that, Mr. Director. We understood. But, but uh, anyway, um, they have this exchange and I call this the Alison Dubois husband folly of paranormal movies, the, the Mr. Dubois folly. And I'll explain after you hear the clip. What do I do now? I mean, uh... ah, I tell you off the record, we have coming here many mediums and spiritualists and so and we test them now 99 percent other frauds but the one percent astonishing a medium Mm -hmm. okay this is a pet peeve of mine and I, just all paranormal movies and TV shows moving forward, we have to stop the Mr. Dubois thing. And here's what I mean. So to your point, Tony, George C. Scott is going through something, we think, but he doesn't play it. For example, he's just heard rhythmic banging, which he's described as this house is trying to communicate with me. He's seen a f- ball that he threw away, landed his feet. And when someone suggests to him, maybe he's bringing a medium, he goes, huh, a medium? What kind of wacky thing are you talking about? I'm like... This is what Mr. Dubois did to Alison Dubois. She would solve a chain of homicides with her dreams. And literally the next week, she'd have a dream and go, something weird happened. And he'd be like, now, Alison, it's just one of your wacky dreams. Like, she just fucking solved the triple homicide. So can we once, can we <laughs> once pay more respect to mediums and the and the process of a haunting or a or a possession or anything we're making in a movie after you've established the lead character's gone through this hell and they've been affected. Can we lose the scene when somebody suggests a remedy where they go, well, that's just kind of crazy. End of rant. I understand though, why, you know, as bad as that is, I understand why they put that in there now though. Because I think that is that is the same thing in a way as saying, like, we're just going to remove all the stuff that's in all these horror movies about, like, I can't believe there's a ghost and it's challenging me. My pro-. Well, they did that in this movie. They really kind of stripped it of all the things you kind of ex- you've seen in other horror movies like like that. And it suffers for it. Mm. There's something about I think, like, to me, horror and this is off the path a little bit because this is a supernatural show, but horror connects here. Absolutely. So I kind of, I kind of give more props to this movie on the supernatural end than I do to the horror movie end, because it makes a couple of missteps that, that really don't help amp up suspense or terror or, or things like that. He, I don't think anybody goes to a paranormal researcher after being um, skeptical and has as, as easy conversation as George C. Scott has with him. Because what I wrote down, I'm agreeing with you. What I wrote down is that uh, he ne- uh, he never starts to doubt himself, really. Um, hmm. And he has no shame in asking for help of this researcher like he was talking to a lawn guy about his squirrel problem. <laughs> and that's kind of what it becomes. Yeah. It's like he becomes like a disgruntled land like guy who's yeah. like, I got I got these raccoons and they're in the garbage all the time. What do I do about it? So he True. goes from being totally skeptical to buying it in a way that 
everybody else on planet Earth would be like, I can't believe I'm actually at this point where right. I have to call a paranormal researcher for my problems. Like that's right. But that's... give me, give me that then that's fine. Like a, a little, like, I can't believe I'm here. This was more the old fashioned, like, well, oh, mediums, here we go. It's like, you just experienced this incredibly intense haunting yeah. experience, which you admitted, Oh my God, this is happening to me. How about this? Like, I would just like this. It's as subtle as this. If you, you be the guy and say like, you should get a medium to come to you. Right. You should get a medium to come to you. Well, that's a great idea. I just had a fucking ball appear at my feet that I threw in the water. How about a priest while we're at it? You know what I mean? Like, just that. Okay, that makes I'm gonna sense only to argue, me. I'm going to only argue one point. Yes. If you're going to keep the writing at this basic a level, absolutely. But if you can, if you can make it a more complicated emotional response, because I okay. could see, I could see somebody because of who they are rejecting completely everything they're seeing True, because like, they just can't handle it. Right. Trying to hold on to some semblance, yeah. but it's too quick that I don't get enough of exactly. that. Exactly. Right. It's well, just you don't gone. see, you don't see him cracking. You right. never really see right. him falling right. apart. Yes. 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 We're saying um, the same thing on that end. Yes. Yeah. hundred yeah. um, percent. Um, what else doesn't work? Uh, I can sum it all up with this trust. The, the writer did not trust us enough. It's it's there's there's no trust. There's too much expository dialogue. One of the prime examples, and there's five I could give you, but the prime example is that wonderful character actor who plays the homicide detective. John Colicos, I think is how you pronounce it. John Colicos plays the police captain. And you've seen his face. He's one of that guy's, those guys. Awesome performance, awesome death, awesome paranormal connection where he yells at George C. Scott. You know, he's the threat at that point, late in the movie. He drives away, and for paranormal reasons, he is then killed in an accident. The reveal of that death is like an upside-down camera view of his haunting, chilling face. He's got one of those faces, the eyes are open, he's dead. You see the broken glass. At the same time, George C. Scott receives a shard of glass to the neck and a mirror that breaks, mirroring the windshield break, this paranormal tie. Super smart. Super well done. We get it. He's dead. The ghost is involved. And then George C. Scott gets a call from the from the girlfriend love interest that's developing. I guess that's where they're going. And she goes, I was just leaving your place. The cop who was just at your house is dead. It's an accident. I'm going like, we know we did not need that. And that type of thing happens, Tony, like four times this movie. Expository dialogue explaining what we already know. They didn't trust us. They they didn't really trust us. And I also think they they got confused. I think they they really knew how to set it up. Yeah. And I think that once the plot got rolling, it it does suffer a little bit for it. It suffers a little bit in the way that I I think it's better connected than in, in you know, Stir of Echoes. But I still don't understand the the amazing connection between that child's lullaby and the music he wrote. He just composes an entire piece of music and then an hour later finds that a a, a music box in an attic has the same song that he just wrote. That would freak me out. Right. And he takes it pretty well, but then I don't feel like they ever really make good on what that song it's, it's just kind of a, they save it for a reveal at the end of a thing that's supposed to be aha, but it's not really, it's a kind of a, uh huh. Yeah. And you don't really have closure on that. You don't really, I don't really, I think they missed the boat huge. I want to bring something up that's really important. Cheeseman Park. Where's okay. That? Do you know what I'm talking about? No. This is based oh. on apparently a true 
the the actual story. house. Yes, let's say that. We should have said the beginning. This is loosely based on a true story of a he was a a, a TV score writer for I believe CBS and a pl- and a playwright and a playwright lived in a house that he said was haunted, and this was yeah. based on his supposed experiences. Yes, this guy, uh, uh, what was his name? Russell Hunter, who wrote the story, not the screenplay, that they based this on, that they also apparently based Poltergeist on. Uh, he lived in a old house on the on the corner of um, uh, what was like the, the the north end of the infamous Cheeseman Park in color in Colorado. I didn't know this. That that park, which used to contain a cemetery, is one of the most haunted places apparently in the country. Yes. You're nodding like this is old news. Yes. I just read about this. They continue to... I knew the poltergeist angle, not this. I, I didn't know this until I read about it. Um, yes, people this continue This is where that whole thing of an Indian burial ground. Yes. They didn't move those bodies. They put a, they put a uh, white person burial ground over it and then built a park over that and had some person who they... Um, uh, this guy that they like gave the job to to take the bodies out was a psychopath was literally insane did you know this no he just took the bodies out and put them in boxes and stored them and tried to make money out of it and like literally hacked up bodies and put them in smaller coffins to make more money good god there was apparently a period of time in Colorado, in that city where there was corpses just all over the place because they were moving these bodies and it was the most disgusting terrifying weird time there and they say that it is like triply haunted because it starts with this indian this native burial ground and then on top of that you've got something that shouldn't have been built and this layering of people that were wronged it's just terrifying and i feel like why didn't why didn't any of that come into this movie i mean you could have included it was there Mm. Because I feel like there's a little problem with motivation. Like, I don't know why this little boy and the spirit, the ghost is a little boy becomes kind of, it, it, it goes into territory where his behavior seems to be more demonic at the end. Right. Yeah. Angry. Yep. Poltergeist. Um, I don't know. I I, I felt like they could have like maybe added this layer of like, wow, maybe it isn't this little boy or maybe yeah. it's something else that's like you know, on top of that that's affecting us. There's more have been a, a place to go. But instead, we get a we get a telephoto shot of of two stunt people pretending to be George C. Scott and Trish Vanderveer <laughs> riding horses <laughs> on a date. <laughs> Agreed. Agreed. That's. That's dated from 1980 or any other time that you'd want to put it in. Uh, Yeah. And then the other thing that didn't work, we credited score and sound design, which for most of the movie is A+. It's C- with the voice of this boy, which when he starts to hear the voice of the boy gets almost comedically silly. Um, Yeah. It's not great. It's not strong. Nor is the reenactment of the death of the kid or how he dies or the or the boy himself as this they, they show him in in his moments of death, which might be a ghost image or the real thing. You don't know. But those are those kind of look like like reenactments out of a, you know, like, out of a reminded me of a, like that video that the police did, like um, wrapped around your finger with all the candles. It was like a video set. <laughs> 
right? I expected Sting to come in like, I'll be wrapped around your finger. And the little boy comes out of the tub. <laughs> little beef about the sound design on the banging. Okay. A little bit. Okay, go. Um, That's not necessarily, in my mind, what George C. Scott would be hearing. That banging noise was accompanying the slow motion footage of the reenactment. So you show the kid and yep. he's being drowned in a tub yeah. and he's banging on the sides of this tub right. to give everything away. It's all right. But when we see it, he's banging, it's all slow motion. So his reactions and the way that he's banging on that tub are slowed down. That isn't what really sounded like. It's a slowed down version of it right. for cinematic effect. I see what you're saying. I think it would have been scarier and more well, believable if we had heard what it really sounded like boom, 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 boom. Yes. from yes. from far away yes and then Agreed. growing louder as the movie progressed because i think that they kind of they go for this big powerful jump scare with the sound but then the sound just kind of gets a little annoying and it doesn't it's not quite realistic it's not coming from anywhere agreed it's just not great sound design like in terms of its sophistication so it just kind of lays on top of everything um little bit of a thing there. I compl- yeah. I, I liked the sound I, in terms of the actual sound, but I agree with you. It would have been much more terrifying to hear a panicked, aggressive banging. Yes, and yeah. that would have mirrored. You're right. The kid would. The kid didn't know he was in a movie, so he didn't no. slow motion bang rhythmic. Right. You're you know, right. You're right. I mean, is I mean, so is Great the does, is the actual event in slow motion now, right. or, or is like is the imprinting yes. of the ghost in it's slow motion? Really good or, point. I, I did. It was just for cinematic effect, and it didn't. Also, uh, another lesson that we've learned in doing this podcast, Tony, when it comes to paranormal and ghost movies, we got to lose the Mr. Dubois. We also have to lose POV of the ghost camera work. Uh, we understand. Oh, I'm going to stay calm. I'm about to do another rant here. When you're having a freaking seance and the ghost lives upstairs, we understand that when the ghost starts communicating with you, that he's like somehow come there we don't need to see the ghost float down the stairs and around the corner into the room now granted it was done less in this movie and probably more effectively but and I, also I kind don't... of for the first time oh was it then i'll give it well, some credit I, 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 I think you're being a little harsh on i'll give it, it some credit i'm sick of it now but i don't think you would have been sick of it in 1980 uh, i right. think that shot would have fair. been pretty arresting fair Fair, fair. I did. I, I just assumed it was doing what they've been doing in Time Memorial. No, it's one of the first because they then really it's groundbreaking. Yeah, I get it. I'm not. It, 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 I'm not sure. They looks like they had a steady cam on it, which would have made it an it early steady cam movie. Okay, because they it was pretty new invention at that thank time. Thank you, thank you, Slash but Stallone. That would have been a pretty arresting thing to see. Like we were, we were new to seeing shots like that when The Shining came out, and it hadn't even come out yet. So. Go easy, man. <sighs> They're right. doing the best they can. They're in Canada. They what gear do they have in Canada? They don't even have proper, you know, they're not, they're cold. They're shooting in the cold, Maddie. Let me re, let me restate it then. Uh, on the nose POV, enough, right? Enough. Like I don't need to see exactly where the ghost is traveling. It's too on the nose. Unexplained no. artistic POV where I'm not kind of sure what's happening. A plus, yeah. I'm all for. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? I don't need to see the ghost leave his room, go down the hallway, down the stairs, into the room of the seance. Well, we get it. Here's why. Psychologically, the last place you should put the audience is in the head of the ghost, really, right? if you want. It should be the unknown. Bingo. I think, the unknown. Perfectly. 100%. Once again, you've said wanna... something I said and said it better and smarter. 
but you we didn't have a smart sound effect to go with it this this show oh. soon we'll have the coffee slurp and i'll be able to sound really smart tony intellectually one-ups maddie there we go i'll just use that and then your sip <laughs> your um, <coffee> yeah. sip. <laughs> i just i'm gonna end my yes. spiel with just you know I, I i i'm putting it on my shelf i think this movie deserves to be on the shelf almost just as a matter of respect um it came first on a lot of things uh what i like about it is truly the paranormal stuff i think they do really well so i kind of feel like you know it hits the it hits the things it needs to hit to be here and it and and it's a it's a classic i mean the things that it inspired you know, the bouncing ball, for instance, is referenced in The Shining and Kukuri and Fear.com and Silent Hill and Session 9. The wheelchair is in Session 9. Yes. It's in the TV show Supernatural, uh, in, in The Awakening, in Paranormal Activity 4, in The Conjuring, wow. that image of the of the child's ball and or the wheelchair. Um, the, the wheelchair is in Silent Hill, Session 9. The single note piano key, which hits, is a great scene where great it's scene. like no one in the room and goes, bing, that's in, they use that in the innkeepers. This movie is deeply referenced wow. and 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 appreciated by horror fans. And so well done. I kind of, I kind of uh, want to put it on the shelf. I don't know. How about you? Well done. How about you? You did actual cinematic research for this show. Had to. The problems with this film, which we've enumerated, are not enough to cancel out the incredible paranormal moments that I experienced yes! watching this film. It's going on the shelf. It's yes! going on the shelf. A win. Yeah. A total win. It's, yes. 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 Great. I like these wins that you have to fight for. Yes. It's good, you know? Because I thought about it. I said, it's about, it's close, you know, and as, as more too. of those exto- expository dialogue scenes happen, I was kind of like, <laughs> but I was like, you know, when he yelled at the house and when they had that scene yeah. with the, it's just, it's just, there's too much good here. And like yeah. you said, I didn't realize how groundbreaking either. So that, that puts it over the top. It's yeah. It's pretty, it's pretty groundbreaking. Yeah. And, 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 power, and meaningful to a lot of other filmmakers. Okay. So there we have it. The changeling is going on the shelf. Hold on. Let me just get my pen here. Tony, you be my assistant. Yep. Tony. Yes. What film will we do next week? Host. He said host. 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 He's written host. 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 2020. <laughs> Coronavirus. Lockdown themed film. Host. 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 See you next week. We hope you've enjoyed this edition of Rated P for Paranormal. Please rate, review, and share. It really does make a difference. For more information, to participate, and even donate, go to our main page, anchor.fm slash ratedparanormal. On social media, we're at ratedparanormal. All music is by Andrew Goldens Jr. You can find him on Instagram at kidriga or go to therocketscience.bandcamp.com. This podcast was created, written, produced, and edited by Maddie Blake and Anthony Arkin. You should get a medium to come to you. Oh, that's a great idea. I just had a fucking ball appear at my feet. I'm going to kill all of you.